Hey everyone, this is Stefan Miller and welcome to The Forever Student. Our next guest is a best-selling author, a global speaker, and a trend specialist. He provides a unique and holistic approach to achieving future readiness by combining psychology, business, and future studies. We're going to be speaking about dealing with uncertainty, finding motivation, and transforming our mindsets. It's my pleasure to welcome him to the show. John Sane, welcome to The Forever Student. Thank you so much. I know this has been a long time in the making, and so really great to be here. Yeah, it sure has been. And and finally, we've made it happen. I think we want to, you know, we want to dive right in. And the first question I have for you is how did you get into the field of future studies? I have always been fascinated with the future. I wrote in my first book how I swindled my mom to buy me a pair of Nikes, which then got thrown at my head because I swindled her because she bust me. Good thing she did. But I've always had this knack to connect these invisible dots into the future. And in one of my books, I wrote that interior designers have this with interiors and fashion people have this with fashion and chefs have it with food, but I have it with the future. And I don't know why, but the the concept of early adoption was something that I was almost mocked by my friends because they used to often say to me, so John, what's new? Every time they saw me, because I was always fascinated with what's new. And so this idea of what's new, I didn't know was a career. In fact, I don't think it was a career, really. It was just something that you always did. And I'm sure, Stephen, you have a friend that always knows what the latest restaurant is in Dubai somewhere, you know? So it's that concept of early adoption. But where my career really started to take off was the combination of psychology and futurism. And I think that combination is fresh. It's unique. And it's obvious to me, but not really obvious to many other people. So I think it's the combination that makes it really, really powerful that says, look, the future is uncertain. The only thing you can be sure of is your behavior. And so we can build scenarios of possible, probable, and plausible futures. But the real thing that we need to be working on is how do we prepare? How do we become adaptable, optimistic, and flexible quite naturally? So that whatever is thrown at us with the future, we're ready for. And in fact, we might even love new challenges and become anti-fragile through the process. And how did you, uh, when did you know that what you were doing at that very moment is something that works? I, I, well, I guess, you know, when you think back on your career, uh, you think about what you used to do like five, six, 10 years ago, and you think to yourself, wow, how did I get paid for that? Or how did even people think that I was doing the right thing? So Initially, it started off very, very, very small. I was helping little cafes, um, like health cafes, uh, step up. And I remember the one trend that I started helping these health cafes was superfoods. Remember when chia seeds were something that nobody knew or quinoa or and nobody knew what they were. But 10 years ago, there was a hot trend. And so I started sharing these with these sort of two cafe owners, and their business really started to boom and take off because it was such a big differentiating factor. But slowly but surely, the process that I started evolving started becoming more in-depth. The clients I started working with started growing. And so if if I think about it, it was amazing from 10 years ago, but if I applied what I applied 10 years ago today, it would be laughable. But it evolved from 10 years ago when I kind of started the process of helping other businesses consulting in a way that could help them become future-proofed. And my first consultancy was called The Fresh Ingredient. And The Fresh Ingredient was really about helping hospitality becoming more future-focused because in my 20s, I owned a half a dozen restaurants. And so I understood that world. But now I work with governments and across all industries uh, understanding the future. And you're currently, if I'm not mistaken, you're currently either in the process of writing a book or you finished it, which is Future Next, Reimagining Our World and Conquering Uncertainty. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Because I feel it's it's something that's so relevant to to today. Yeah, thank you. I, um, I'm in the process of finalizing covers, edits, re-edits, making sure we're using the right words. Also, when we started writing the book, it was the beginning of COVID. And now it's, I wouldn't say it's the end of COVID, but it's then the next evolution of COVID. Um, And we're changing the tone and tense. And so we've been writing it for about four or five months now. The book has three very clear sections. One is what do you do on an emotional and mental level when preparing for uncertainty? There are tricks and tools that I've written out. Like, for example, one of them is called Mourning Your Future Memories. 
is really letting go of your future expectations because those things determine your behavior in the now. And when the future is uncertain, there's very little that you can really project into the future and be guaranteed of it. The second part of the book is reimagining a possible new future that has a more fair, just, and sustainable socioeconomic system for the whole world to benefit rather than this elitist and uh, sort of disparity between wealth and poverty. And the third part is a guidebook, a guidebook to how do we show up as entrepreneurs, as employees, as employers, as policymakers to be part of this new world so that we don't sit on the sidelines and blame the government or blame blame whatever you want, your past, your color, your your gender, uh, to be not part of this new world. So future next is how do we become active participants in a world that is beneficial to everybody, a world that we are proud to let to leave behind to our kids and a world that doesn't have cruelty and pain in it. And how do we go about building a world like this? I'm co-authoring it with a very well-known economist called Iraj Abedion. And so I think the, 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 the mix of futurism, human psychology and economics is a really fantastic mix, and, and I hope it's going to be a very popular book. It comes out in about five weeks' time. And we're super excited to read it, and uh, and we'll keep our listeners posted as well on, on when that's coming out. Granted, what's happened this year, and obviously, you know, a lot of it uh, has come as a bit of a surprise, maybe not to you as a futurist, but definitely to us. And in parallel, you know, we can't possibly know what's to come in the future or even in the near future. How can we go about preparing ourselves further for uncertainty because i think in the last in the last 6 to 7 months so much has happened so many people have suffered and so many people have sort of lost track of of where they're going so how can we prepare for that uncertainty in the future so i i, I mean i obviously had no idea a pandemic was coming but actually a lot of the things that i wrote about and wrote about in foresight my last book really happened but 10 years too early uh, and that's really what's happened is the future arrived 10 years too early. I mean, we all expected to be working remotely and distributedly through digital and Zoom, like maybe in 10 years time, but now it's the obvious and the only way we're doing things. So I think the only thing I got wrong was the timing of the stuff that I wrote about. But it was for me, it's kind of obvious what was coming. But either way, we live now in a world where forecasting has become very difficult. And if you think about any business what you always have is a forecast, plan, and execute, the three pillars of all businesses. What are we forecasting? Where are we going? How do we plan to achieve that? And how do we execute our teams to be able to bring that into fruition? Unfortunately, the forecasting pillar is not available to us anymore. I think the world's best futurists reckon they can see 150 days into the future. I don't think they can. I don't even think we can see 120 days into the future. But whatever the case may be, what we have to realize is that it changes the way we prepare because the forecasting pillar is not there anymore. So the world we come from is a complicated world and the world we're moving towards is a complex world. There's a massive difference. A complicated world is a world with intricate patterns that repeat themselves. A complex world is a world of intricate patterns that don't repeat themselves. And so what we have now is the inability to utilize the same tool sets we used to use to work ourselves out of a problem in a complicated world. So in a complicated world, the winners were the mathematicians, the actuaries, the accountants, the Excel spreadsheet um, orchestrators. You know, they, they were able to extrapolate the past into the future with some adjustments because they were able to utilize forecasting as a tool set. But now what we live is a world where we have no idea what's coming. So automation, mathematics, and Excel spreadsheets are actually useless when it comes to this. So let me ground this with an example. When you go to the airport and you get to the airport, when you put your suitcase into the luggage conveyor belt, you are now dealing with a complicated system. In other words, it utilizes automation, mathematics, and a very efficient way of doing things to get your suitcase to you on the plane. Efficiency, just in time, and economies of scale are everything and necessary to make the complicated system work. But when you get onto the plane, now you're dealing with a complex world. In other words, you have no idea what's gonna to happen to you when you're on the flight. 
Will there be a lightning strike? Will there be another plane? Will the engine go down? Will the pilot die? Will there be a hijacking? You have no idea. So what you do is in a plane, you have four engines and one is enough. You have four pilots and one is enough. You have three operating op systems and one is enough. Because up there, you have no idea what's coming. So economies of scale doesn't work anymore. You need economies of learning. In other words, how quick can you unlearn to relearn? It's about robust expression, not efficient expression, which is what we've always driven is efficiency. Now it's robustness. So the way we prepare has to drastically change. And so let me give you another further example. If you think about a baker and a baker that has a bakery and because of COVID, his bakery has ended and he's not able to bake because people aren't allowed to come to him. But if this same baker had a YouTube channel, had a Udemy course to teach you how to bake bread, had a range of baking utensils that he could ship to you, and he was able to teach you how to utilize flour and whatever, salt and um, whatever that makes up bread and cakes, and he could teach you over YouTube, now what he has is a robust expression of his skill sets. He is now utilizing all the platforms available to him to be able to express himself in his passion. If he was only focused on a complicated world, he would drive efficiencies in his one bakery to create as much profitability for the least amount of work. But that doesn't exist anymore. So for example, myself, I am a speaker that used to go around the world speaking in conferences, but now that's not available to me. So what do I have to rely on? I've set up something called the School of Modern Wisdom, which takes all my research and makes it online courses. And I run masterclasses based on how to prepare our kids for the future, how to prepare ourselves for the future, our relationship with money. I've diversified my expression, research, and passion into multiple new ways to be able to have access to the number of people that are around the world. So uncertainty is all about robust expression, having as many different ways to express yourself because we have no idea what is coming over the next few years. Yeah, and I think what, what you're saying as well is that you have to be extremely adaptable and flexible for whatever, whatever life throws at you. And also just looking at like what I, what I keep saying is controlling the controllables. There's a lot of things that we as human beings can't control. And an, a pandemic is definitely one of them. And I think being flexible and being adaptable to whatever circumstances you find yourself in will help you deal with those efficiently. Well, let's, let's break down what creates adaptability. And adaptability is actually our ability to not have expectations that are solid. And what creates expectations that are solid is our memories. And what do our memories do? They create stories for us. So as human beings, we are all made up of memories and stories. Stories handed down to us from generations before us, from society, from social media, what's normal and what's not normal. Memories of what we believe are painful things or catalyzing memories. So what we do is we maneuver our way through the world, utilizing our memories and stories. Now, all stories are fictitious. All memories are fictitious. And they are just subjective things that we have decided to hold on to in our individual capacity and a societal capacity. And if we think about some stories that are just ridiculous today, are like slavery, or women not voting, or children in labor camps, or apartheid here in South Africa. 25 to 150 years ago, all the things I mentioned were normal, because that's just the way it was. I mean, that's just the story that was handed down to us. Today, they are ridiculous. And so the, in order to be adaptable, we need to heal our memories. In other words, we need to heal the things that made us feel less than angry, impatient, resentful, because those memories are the blueprint for our reality creation, which we keep recreating. You know, it's always that idea that some people always have a boss that's abusive and some people never have a boss that's abusive. Some people make money easily. Some people never make money easily. And that's based on a story and a memory. So I talk a lot about preparation and the future becoming adaptable and optimistic is based on you healing your past and choosing which stories you want to buy into and realizing that societies are just made up of stories and generationally they change. And so you have a Mitch McConnell in the Republican Party that's got a story around success 
and the doctrine of growth over everything else at the expense of nature and humans based on his memories and stories. And then you have Greta Thunberg, who's got a totally new set of stories and memories challenging those stories and memories. So adaptability is based on our psychology, based on our memories and based on stories. And I think also very much based on based on perception of those stories, because I think that, you know, like you said, I think when, when two people go through the same experiences and the same events, the way that they handle those events are extremely different and in turn then have a tremendous impact on whether it's our happiness or whether it's our motivation or whether it's our direction or whether it's finding our purpose or whatever it may be. Well, I mean, if I've got a brother and I'm sure if you've got any siblings, my brother is exactly the opposite to me. He sometimes tells me about things that we remember from kids and I have no idea what he's talking about. And we grew up in the same household. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, perspective, yeah, exactly. stories and memories are everything. And, okay, when it comes to sort of today's world, what I've realized with a lot of acquaintances, friends, people that I've been speaking to, a lot of them are lacking direction, mainly because of how COVID or let's say 2020 has thrown them off. How have you personally found motivation during the time like this? And what would you tell those who are lacking, whether it's motivation or, or direction? So let's just start off with understanding why they are feeling lost or directionless. And the reason is, is that they've allowed outer realities determine who they are. Let me give you this. Let me, let me explain further. When we were growing up, our parents told us and society told us that you need to be very good at school and you need to study X, Y, and Z. And these are the roles that you can go to university and study to become successful in inverted commas and close inverted commas. Once we had studied, we got a job and we carried on in that job. Nowhere throughout our childhood and upbringing did anybody ask us what we are curious about? Because curiosity was for the weekends and curiosity was for what you did after school. And so what has happened is that these people are directionless is because they don't know what they're curious about. When you're curious about the world, no matter what happens on the outside, it's irrelevant because you are into your curiosity in such a deep way that you have tapped into your own genius, your purpose, your cause, the reason you're here. And the gateway to this genius that all of us have is curiosity, excitement, what shines brightest, what you're passionate about. And so most people don't know what they're passionate about because they haven't exposed themselves to enough things. And so the only way that you can find out what you're passionate about is to try different things. So you have eight days a month to try these new things out. They're called the weekends. So every weekend, you can wake up and you can say, today, I'm going to try this that I've never tried before. And I'm going to see if I have an inclination towards it or not. And within two months, you'll have tried 16 different things. And let me tell you, when you've tried 16 different things, you'll have an inclination of what you're passionate about, without a doubt. And remember that when education told us these are the roles you can go and study to become uh, successful in a linear industrial revolution society, those roles are called degrees. Those degrees are what we're supposed to be curious about. I don't know, is anybody you know curious about accounting? I don't know if anybody is. Maybe engineering, because they want to solve issues or problems. But truth is, is that curiosity has been kicked out of us from a very, very young age. And so the way I've kept myself, and, and look, I don't want to use the word motivated, because I think there's a massive difference between motivation and discipline. And so I've kept myself disciplined because I'm very clear on who I want to be. People who are directionless need motivation. I don't need motivation. I have discipline. And so there's a massive difference. So let me explain further. Because what you have is a to-do list and a to-be list. Everybody's stuck on a to-do list. A to-do list says, I need to go to gym on a Monday morning and because I need to do list, uh, lose weight because summer's coming, blah, 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 whatever. And then what happens when your alarm clock goes off at 5 a.m., you snooze it because you need motivation. Now, if you decide who you want to be, you work backwards. It becomes obvious what your actions need to be and who you need to be is always based on your highest levels of excitement and curiosity. So one of my major drivers is to alleviate fear in the world because most things that are going wrong in the world are based on a perspective of fear. Now, in order for me to reach as many people as possible, 
I want to be a New York Times bestseller. And in order for me to become a New York Times bestseller, I need to become much better at writing and become much better at my voice and what I'm trying to bring across to the world. So because that is one of my to-be lists, it becomes obvious for me to have a discipline to write a book every year, which I've been doing for the last four years. I don't need motivation to write a book anymore. I now have the discipline to do so. So to close off to your question, if people are directionless, they are thinking too much with their head and not feeling with their heart. Their heart will tell them what they're curious about and what they're here in the world for. As Mark Twain said, the two most important days of your life are when you're born and when you find out why. They haven't found out why yet. And you can only do that through exposure and passion. The second part is don't look for motivation, look for discipline. There's a massive difference and your energy, your access to energy changes in a fundamental way when you decide who you want to be rather than what you need to do to get to that goal. I think, I mean, that's so well said and I, and I couldn't agree more because the way I see it is don't try to find your purpose, find your curiosities and chase those curiosities. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. If you're working a nine to five, what are you doing from six till 12? If you have two days a week off, what are you doing on those two days? You know, if you have the ability to try different things, why are you not trying them? And, and I did this for years where I was just trying to start business after business and creating business plan after business plan and would work on it for whatever it is, two, three weeks, one month, two months, until I reach a point of whether it either doesn't work, I lost passion for it. It doesn't create any impact in the world, whatever it may be. And then you get to a point after trying 50, 60, 70 different things where you're like, okay, this looks interesting. Um, maybe let's, you know, double down on this instead. And I think your point is a very good one because this generation, my generation and your generation, hasn't been educated in a way where we were taught to do that. We were unfortunately forced to do that as a result of lacking direction or as a result of unhappiness. When it comes to, I would love to hear your take on this. When it comes to the current education system and the way that it's set up, it's it's a model that's that's centuries old. If you were able to make change, what are the changes that you would make? Look, I think the education system has done excellent things for humanity over the last 150 years. And like anything in life, things evolve. And unfortunately, we are in a transition phase, or maybe fortunately, we're in a transition phase between the old linear world and this new quantum, multi-adaptive, multifaceted world. So we have one leg in the past and we're in one brain cell in the future. You know what I mean? So we stretched. So we don't actually know what to do with our kids. We know what they're doing is wrong, but we actually don't know what's next, right? So this won't last forever. It's just a transition phase and eventually we'll figure it out. But what really is most important is that what I think and one something I've been writing a lot about, the era of the corporate the corporation, the employee is coming to an end. We are moving into an era of the forced entrepreneur. And the forced entrepreneur is based on this ability to utilize the internet to get people to join your mission, to become part of your movement based on your curiosity and based on your ability to get people to move with you. Now, if you think about the internet, we have 5 billion people on, soon we'll have 8 billion people on. All you really need to do is have 0.00001% of them paying you $1 a month and you're living large. And so it's not really a big task. You know what I mean? It's not a massive task, but it's something that we're still getting used to because our ideology of success is get the degree, get the job and stay in a company that you look up to. But I think those days are coming to an end. And I think right now we can see that many companies are laying people off, guaranteed jobs that we would never think would be lost are being lost. And so there are no guarantees. And so the only thing we can guarantee is our behavior. And so we need to be educating our kids on behavior, not knowledge. Knowledge is available to us. How we engage with the knowledge is everything. So I do a masterclass called uh, Future Superhumans. And I'll give you like, for example, storytelling. Storytelling is a massive, massive skill in today's world. How many kids do you know that are very comfortable in doing a 10-minute TED Talk? I know very few. So that's one subject. Every week, choose a topic, do 10 minutes, presentation to us. What does that do? It gets you to be comfortable in front of a camera, in front of a crowd. It gets you to discuss a topic that you could be passionate about or not. But the storytelling ability 
to influence, motivate, and get people to join your mission is so important. No schools are teaching it. They do debating, which is if you want to do it or not. Another one is grit. How do you teach grit? Because grit is important. And so the best way we've, we've sort of like researched how to teach grit is imagine every week your kids would dissect a very, very famous entrepreneur about their life. How close were they to bankruptcy? How many times? Did they get sick? Did they get divorced? Which company, which business partner tried to uh, catch a fast one on them? Or how did they get out of that rut? Or how do they raise money? So grit is another subject, for example. And then passion. How do you teach passion? And the thing with passion is exposure. Imagine every week your child had to look at a career, dissect it, present to you in a story fashion, storytelling fashion about that career so that they can realize what parts of the career they're passionate about and what parts of it they're not. And then technology. Are we stopping our kids being on Instagram or are we teaching them how to sell on Instagram? Big difference because most parents want to stop their kids being online instead of helping them become more profitable online. So you understand that the things that our kids need to learn I'll tell you a quick secret is that their parents need to learn a lot more and a lot faster because there's a great line that says, your actions are so loud, I can't hear a word you're saying. So parents, you're asking your kids to be adaptable, future ready, but you're in a job you don't like. You're asking your kids to be optimistic, but you complain about the world all the time. So really what we have to be doing is treating our kids just like we treat ourselves, reskilling ourselves. And guess what? The forever student is exactly yeah. what it's about. Digging in further on that, because I think another key topic to achieving what you're talking about is to unlearn. And I think unlearning for me has been harder than learning. Firstly, what is your take on unlearning? And do you have steps or tips or some sort of guidance as to how to go about that process? Alan Watts has a great saying. He says, the knowledgeable man has to learn something new every day, but the wise man has to unlearn something new every day. So it's wisdom, really. That's what you're talking about, right? So look, somebody said to me on a podcast previously, he said to me, how do you get rid of bad habits? Which is what you're saying is, how do we unlearn? And the answer is you don't. The answer is you become so enthralled in what you are curious, passionate, and excited about that those old stories fall away by themselves. It's almost like saying, you know, people that you don't like, all you have to do is grow consciously that they fall off. You don't even have to have those conversations. Your circle of friends, your circle of influence, your circle of knowledge is based on how passionate and focused you are on that passion. When you are so focused on that, the old things just fall away naturally because they don't have space in this new focus part. And so remember that your reality is 100% your focused attention. And so when your focused attention is where you're going rather than where you've been, you don't need to worry about unlearning. It happens naturally. That does make a lot of sense. I think switching gears slightly here, I also wanted to touch on accountability because I feel like we're currently in a time where it's very easy to blame things on external circumstances. And we're all guilty of it. We've all done it before. But I do feel that there are specific things currently that you can always try and control and you can't blame on anything else, which are eating well, working out, taking care of our mind, et cetera, et cetera. How do you feel about our current state and the positive role that accountability plays or can play? It's a great question. I've actually never been asked that question, but I think it links to the to-be list. You know, when you've made a decision about who you want to be, how you want to show up, what value you want to bring to the world, that's based on your curiosity and your excitement, I don't think you need to be held accountable to anybody. You hold yourself accountable based on your own passion and drive. Nobody says to me every year, so uh, John, um, where's your new book? Or John, uh, have you created a new talk? Or John, have you started another tech business? These are just things that I have to do to be part and parcel of who I want to be and how I want to show up. And so I think what happens is that most people, not most people, a lot of people fall into the victim trap. You know, victimization of self or the drama triangle or the naive triangle, it's got a few names, has three characteristics in it. The first characteristic is the poor me characteristic. Poor me, I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't be held accountable because it's not my fault. 
Or you could be sympathetic towards the world's issues and problems out there, but not actually doing anything about it, which means you give yourself the permission to be upset and sad with all the problems of the world. Middle Eastern moms are the best at this. They sit there being sad. I'm a Middle Eastern, so I can say this. So they can sit there and be sad about the world, but not really do much, but just sit and stew in the sadness. And then the third one is the angry person, angry with this person and angry with that person and angry with the world. And again, all of these lack accountability because it's not your fault. It's that person. That's why I'm angry with them. And that's why I'm sad. And that's why it's poor me. But we can choose to move into a creator triangle. And the creator triangle has three characteristics. You go from victim to creator. Poor me to where the opportunities. You go from sympathy to empathy. In other words, I don't feel sorry for the world. I'm helping empower the world. Uh, Oprah is a great example. She doesn't feel sorry for women. She empowers women. And then you have the angry person moving to a challenger. I challenge myself to step up. I challenge the world around me to step up. And we have multiple relationships in our lives, relationships with money, our body, power, our careers, our friends, our intimate relationships, you name it. And in each one of these relationships, we either in the victim triangle or the creator triangle. And when I started writing about these two triangles, I was shocked to realize that I was stuck deeply in two drama triangles. The first one was my relationship with social capital and my ability to be more famous. Now, nobody wants to say to anybody that they want to be more famous because that's taboo to say. So you keep it undercover and you kind of say, oh, yeah, I've got that many thousand Instagram followers and you, you blase it. But actually, you're counting it because, I mean, that's what your social capital kind of lives on. And so I realized that every time I saw a Simon Sinek video, for example, who had 25 million views and I had 2,000 views, I would switch into the drama triangle just internally in my head. I'd be angry with the people liking it. I'll feel sorry for myself that I'm not from America, that I didn't have access to all that media that he had. Instead of celebrating it, looking for new options to collaborate with him, et cetera, et cetera. You understand? That accountability is linked to not being clear on who you are and falling victim of the drama triangle. So accountability is really just an expression of your inability to be emotionally fit. That makes sense. Another thing is that in today's world, uh, slightly sidetracking it, but in today's world, we're, we're, we're now forced to adapt. And I keep going back to this year because it's just been, it's just been a year of, of tremendous change for a lot of people. And a lot of people have had now reality checks where they're like, I can't sit here any longer and complain about the world. I need to, I need to transform. And I understand that I need to transform in order to become more happy, more fulfilled, more successful, healthier, whatever it may be. Now, a lot of these people now have to say goodbye to the old and welcome the new, which is certainly much harder said than done. What sort of advice would you give to someone anxious about this transformation process? Because there's a lot of people that are embracing it, right? They were like, you know, I got let go from this job. It's a good sign. Maybe it's time for something new. But there's a lot of people who are in a similar sort of boat and they don't know what's next or how to transform. So, I mean, you ask good questions. You should do this for a living, Stephen. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, okay, so there's a couple answers here because it's quite a layered approach. You know when you're running, are you a runner? Yeah, I am a runner, actually. Yeah, I'm, a runner. I'm also a runner. And uh, I think you're a much better runner than me looking at your physique. But anyway, <laughs> I'm a runner. But you know what happens when you can't catch your breath? It means you're unfit. You know when you're anxious and not seamless and fluid in your persona and your perspective? It means you're emotionally unfit. Anxiousness just means that you're unfit. That's all it means because you can change that and become fitter. How do you become fitter to run? Slowly, every day. How do you become fitter in your emotional state? Slowly, every day. So remember that our brains create habits as quickly as possible so that it doesn't have to utilize energy and to be able to create normal activity throughout the day without using any brain power. Making coffee, driving your car, brushing your teeth. These are all habits that our brain has gotten us to incorporate into our daily actions. But guess what else is a habit? Anxiousness. Our body becomes our mind. Our body becomes programmed to react to the world before our brain has even had an opportunity to dissect it. So, you know, some people who might owe some people money every time the phone rings, before, the, before they've even looked at who it is, they're anxious. What happened? 
is that they have become automatically in a habitual state of anxiousness. So if you are not able to see the world seamlessly, optimistically, or in a fluid manner, what you have to do is you have to get down to understanding what in your memory bank has created the idea that you're not good enough and that you can't perform in a new world in a new way. You have to dissect that. And look, all of us have painful memories. You're not alone. That's part of being human. So many of us have daddy issues because our dads and the generation our dads came from didn't have the emotional quotient, the celebration from society to deal with themselves on an emotional level. So many of us have daddy issues. We didn't get acknowledged. Our father might've been abusive to us, or we might've had an overwhelming mother that doted over us and made us babies uh, throughout our adult lives. And so we have to deal with these memories and deal with the inability to become responsible for our perspective and our inability to not be anxious. So Look, anxiousness is a part of the human plethora of emotions, but somehow you've made it your default. That's not supposed to be like that. It's just what's happened in our psyche and our society. So what I suggest you do is realize that there's no silver bullet. And just like getting fit to run, get yourself a practice on a daily basis, if not twice a day or three times a day, So you can able to change your ritual of anxiousness to one of seamlessness. And remember that your personality is made up of your behaviors, which are made up of your habits, which are made up of your rituals. So your rituals are who you are. And so I meditate twice a day, every day, because I know when I don't, I start feeling jittery because even in my programming, I still have that level and opportunity to become anxious, but I have to manage it. And look, if you stop running, what happens? You stop being fit. So it's a daily practice to stop looking at the world in a place of fear and rather in a place of optimistic opportunity. Yeah, it's looking who you want to be mixed with discipline and setting those goals effectively. I know it's very, obviously very different for everyone uh, looking at you know your daily habits. Mine are not looking at my phone for the first two hours of the day. It's meditation, it's cold showers, it's running, it's reading. These are things that, you know, I've made it a point, do it for 100 days. After 100 days, either take one out, add one in, whatever it is, whatever really works for you. When it comes to these practices, however, I feel that there's some that are universal. I feel like not looking at your phone as soon as you wake up, meditation, exercise, eating healthy. These are all things that are very simple, easy ways in order for you to get rid of, not get rid of, to ease the anxiety or to ease the depression or to ease this transformation process. Do you have any other habits of your own or any other words of wisdom, basically, that we can implement into our daily lives? Look, I think all of us are split into three different beings. We have an emotional being, a mental being, and a physical being. And what we have to do is manage all three. Physical is obvious. All of us understand physical. Why? Because we want to look fit, look good, and just be flexible in life, right? So we eat, the, I mean, eating is the easiest one, right? So it's almost like, yeah, I can eat well. I need to know I have my alkaline and all those sort of things. But then many of us put a lot of effort into the mental state. So am I a high performer? Am I goal-driven? Am I learning? Am I growing? That's also something that many people do. But now you ask these people if they've done any emotional work. And most of them will say, what do you mean? emotional work. And emotional work is where your heart sets at, is the inability to move that little bit of anxiousness the minute you wake up that becomes a monster by 11 a.m. and that by 3 p.m. you have had your worst day in your life. That little bit of anxiousness that you wake up in the morning is your emotional body screaming at you. So the, the thing to do is there's two ways to heal that emotional body. It's one, doing extensive amounts of work on your memories And the other one is meditation when you wake up in the morning, putting yourself into a state of wholeness, putting yourself into a state of looking for opportunities rather than problems so that you can start your day with an ability to look for opportunities, look for ways to expand rather than the opposite. So throughout my day, I focus on all three every day, every single day, because if you let it go after a few days, you just start going backwards towards your old programming. So Emotional, mental, and physical habituation and rituals 
are imperative. And like you said, everybody's different. So you choose yours, but make sure that you're applying them on a daily basis. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that when I don't meditate or when I don't go through my, my morning practices or my evening practices, I'm not a pleasant person to be around. Or maybe just, maybe not as pleasant as I would be if I, if I would have gone through those, uh, those specific practices. And I realize it in, in how I deal with people, you realize it in your concentration, you realize it with controlling your thoughts. I think when you stick to implementing healthy habits in the mornings, in the evenings, throughout the day, you're on a good path to at least a clear mind. Look, I don't want to take anything away from if you're not feeling good, it's okay to stew in it for a while. I give myself like, you know, a timeline. Like I say, look, for today, you can be depressed, but tomorrow you're going for a run. So enjoy it. Eat that pizza, eat that extra ice cream. You're going to feel bad about it, but it's okay. Give yourself the permission to stew because we're not robots. We are seasonal beings, just like earth. We all have spring, summer, autumn, and winters, all of us. And so what we need to do is also allow ourselves to be kind to ourselves. And if you think you're going to be in a winter mood, then don't be around people. Just be okay with being in a winter mood. Don't now force yourself to be in a summer mood and go around people. So look, I think it's imperative that we allow ourselves to be seasonal. So yes, put in the work, but sometimes you just need to be upset. And sometimes you just want to be sad yeah. and that's okay too. You got to feel your feelings fully always and uh, and allow others to do the same thing. I think that's one of the things that I struggle with is whenever I have a friend or, or a relative who's going through a tough time, I'm immediately solution oriented. I'm in immediately like, maybe you should do this or maybe you should do that. Instead of being like, they're going through a tough time, give them the day, let them eat their pizza, eat their tub of ice cream and come back tomorrow and uh, and then give your solutions. Look, uh, uh, Stephen, I don't know, man. Uh, I've had a, uh, I've made a big mistake of trying to do that to my girl, ex-girlfriends or ex-wife is always trying to be solution-driven. Oh, 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 big problem. <laughs> so yes, it's not the way to go about doing it. Absolutely. So last question of the day, and, and this is going to be an interesting one. I know that you come from humble beginnings and you've worked tirelessly to never be poor. I feel like that mindset outside of resulting from a specific background or situation, how do you obtain it? Okay. Okay. Well, let me, let me back up here. I think that's the worst mindset not to be poor. Okay. So let me explain. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, that, that is the worst thing you could do is not be poor. Tell okay, us. But let me explain. So my Tell second us. book, I, I write, I start off with a line that says, are you running away from the darkness or are you running towards the light? And what happens from the outside, when you look at somebody, they could be goal-driven, they could be ambitious, they could be high energy, but they are either motivated by running away from something or running towards something. And it's very, very clear what those emotions are. One is anxious because if I'm running away from a lion that wants to eat me, I'm still energized, but the lion's coming to eat me. So I'm anxious, I'm running away. But I'm also, I've got this other guy who's running towards Athens. You know, he's running towards the goal. And he's also energized because he wants to win the race. But he's not running away, he's running towards. So with my life, I come from a single mom family and we were always financially challenged. And this frustrated me so much from a young age. I remember my mom couldn't buy a, my brother and I a yo-yo to share, which was like, I, I mean, it must have been, if I think in today's terms, 25 US cents was the price of this yo-yo. And my mom was a secretary and she was making very little money. And this made me so angry and so upset that I made a commitment to myself that I will never be poor again. Now, that's a very big problem because that says I'm anxious about not being poor anymore. And so from 13 years old, I started working and I became a multimillionaire by the time I was 25, 26 years old. I had a multiple restaurants, multiple retail stores, vending machines, shoe distribution businesses. I had a whole bunch of things. And then at 30, I went bankrupt. And I started to realize that the whole time I was driving my success was because I was running away from poverty. I was never running towards wealth. I didn't even understand what wealth was. And then in fact, I remember telling so many of my customers in my restaurants, which were very popular, I used to say to my customers, I never want to be poor. That's why I work so hard. And so don't try to not be poor at all, ever. What you have to do and what I've learned to do is to 
find your curiosity, build the container to attract money, realize that money has a relationship that's required from you that requires intention, cadence, warmth, welcoming energy that allows money to be with you through your process of exploring your expansion towards your goal. So it's one thing to be driven towards something, but you also still have to fix your relationship with money. And a lot of people never even speak about their relationship with money because society's made it something rude to talk about. And so we always say, money's a result of me working hard. Yes and no. Because if you're working hard, it doesn't mean you're automatically going to make money. How many poor people do you know that work really hard? Lots. Billions of people around the world work 16-hour days and they're poor. So hard work doesn't equal money. Your relationship with money equals money. Are you confident with it? Are you excited that money's coming into your life? Are you at ease that money's coming into your life? Are you in do you love money? And most people say, you can't love money. And I say, why? What did it do to you? Did it hurt you? Did it, um, did it hurt your family? Did it backstab you? Did it cheat on you? No, it didn't do anything to you. So why don't you, can't you love money? Not love money for the sake of loving money, but why don't, can't you be friendly with the idea of money? And I had this discussion with my mom. You know, my mom's done pretty well. My mom and dad, they live on a farm. And I said to her, so why don't you have more money in your life? She said, no, 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 I've got enough. I don't need any more. I said, yeah, I don't think you need any more. But do you think if you had more, you could put more kids through school? Because she's, they're my mom and dad are educating some of the kids that work on the farm, not, not the kids, the people that work on the farm, they're kids. My mom and dad pay for their education. And so I said, couldn't you put more kids through education? She's like, yeah, I could. I said, so why don't you want more money? It's like, why would you not want more of it into your life? So if you think about this idea around excitement, ease, and love, which is something I speak about in my other masterclass called Your Money in Motion, is the opposites of excitement, ease, and love are depressed, anxious, and fear. So how many times do you think about money and you're depressed that you don't have enough of it? Or you're anxious that no more of it is coming to you? Or you don't like people with money because you hated that money spending time with them and not with you? So what happens is we go throughout life thinking that hard work will give us money, but really it's just our relationship with money. Now you combine your ability to be excited about what you're doing running towards building a mission that's going to evolve and grow and expand the world around you with a good relationship with money. And dude, how's your life not going to be great? Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think the relationship with money is just so incredibly important. And I've realized it in my own life. As soon as you switch that mindset, everything, everything changes. I think most of the world suffers from this idea that there isn't enough money in the system. And you know what? There's plenty money in the system. And money doesn't only have to come to you because you're a good person. That's another ridiculous notion. Why do drug dealers have so much money? Why do corrupt politicians have so much money? Money's neutral. Money doesn't care if you're doing good or bad with it. Money just wants you to create a container and intention and a cadence with it. And then you have it. You know, so think about the world's most famous drug lord. Pablo Escobar, he was what? Something like sixth richest person in the history of humanity. <laughs> I mean, so money that is neutral. So it's not like I must be charitable to bring more money into my life. I must be a good person to bring more money. No, you don't. You just have to have a good relationship with money and then go on and start building your life. So, you know, it's funny because I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a future strategist. I'm a trend specialist. And for many, many years, I used to be invi invited to talk about the future. And what I started, started to realize is that no matter how much you spoke, think about the future, you're still stuck on your memories and your bad relationships within yourself and your self-worth. And so the future is a daunting place when you're not clear in who you are and have healed your relationship. So I can talk to you about drones and AI and blockchain. How useless is it if you're still suffering from bad memories and a bad relationship with money? It becomes pointless. In fact, in fact, it becomes even more daunting hearing about drones and AI and blockchain when you're not internally ready. So, you know, my first book was so much about the future. My second book was half about psychology and the future. My third book was just about psychology. And my fourth book is about socio, socio, societal um, stories and societal psychology, which is what we are dealing with right now, you know? So it's all about psychology. It's all about perspective. It's all about how you perceive the future is how you prepare for it. And so we have to become optimistic and healed because otherwise 
it's going to be a terrible life, you know? Yeah, I think dealing dealing effectively with your past will almost automatically somewhat guarantee you getting ready for the future. Joe Dispenza has a great line. He says, are you living a life based on a set of memories from your past? Or are you living a life based on a vision of your future? And most people are in repetition. That's why when you get onto your phone, the first thing you do in the morning is you are clicking into who you were, not who you want to become. So it keeps you stuck and anchored in the past, not in the future. John, with that, I would like to say thank you because you have just provided us with a lot of necessary wisdom for uh, for a time where a lot of people are struggling, a lot of people are suffering. I think this is going to add a tremendous amount of value to the lives of of our listeners and, and beyond. Uh, so listen, thank you so much for, for being here today. And we also very much look forward uh, to Future Next, reimagining our world and conquering uncertainty, which will be out in hopefully the next six weeks or so. Yeah, yeah, six weeks. So thank you so much for having me. I wish everybody out there listening a lot of luck. It's not going to be easy, but absolutely necessary for us to evolve to become part of this new world. Ciao, Stephen. Thank, thank you. So I think it's safe to say that we learned a tremendous amount from John today. The main question that we addressed in this episode is how can we look at our behavior and make it as flexible and adaptable as possible to be ready for whatever the future throws at us? And there's a few answers to this. First, we need to let go of future expectations because those things determine your behavior in the present. Second, the way we prepare and operate has to change. We need to utilize our skill sets on all platforms available to us. Remember the example of the baker? Don't just rely on the bakery, but look at what you can do on other channels and verticals and stay relevant with the times. Third, know that all of us are made up of memories and stories. And in order to be adaptable, we need to heal our memories and tell ourselves new stories that make us less angry, impatient, and resentful. And then we have allowed outer realities to determine who we are and have allowed our day-to-day -to, -day to outweigh our curiosities. So instead, let's try different things frequently and chase those curiosities. We also need to keep ourselves motivated, but more importantly, keep ourselves disciplined. Because as we all know, consistency compounds. Also, stay accountable to yourself. Control the controllables and accept what's outside of your control. And finally, bring in daily practices into your life that add value. Step by step, slowly, slowly. These can be personalized to you, but know that eating healthy, meditating, and exercising are pretty common in top performers. 